2: Hello, it's Alva here. We recorded the podcast that you're about to hear in front of a live audience at Labour Party Conference.
0: everyone and welcome to a special live episode of the New Statesman podcast from the Labour Party Conference. I'm Anoush Shikelian, Britain editor of the New Statesman and I'm joined by my colleagues Alvaray, political correspondent and Stephen Bush, political editor. Thank you so much for coming to join us. So today really we're trying to work out whether or not this has been so far, I mean we're on the Tuesday, a good or bad conference for Keir Starmer. It's the first time he'll be actually addressing Labour members in the room tomorrow in his leader's speech. And an awful lot has happened in the build-up until then. So first of all, I think we're going to talk about how conference kicked off, which was with a little bit of an internal battle over, over rule changes and whether or not that's made a difference to the mood within the party, Keir Starmer's position, or whether it's actually undermined what Labour wanted to achieve from this conference, which is to bring across its vision for the country. So, Stephen, you were following the ins and outs of those rule changes. I've heard there were nine-hour... NEC Zoom meetings. Uh, well, someone on the NEC told me that um, she was just sort of like, you know, turning her camera off and going to make cups of tea, coming back half an hour later and they were still talking about the same thing. So that gives a vibe of, of how <laughs> fractious these kind of conversations can be. So, what actually happened and did Keir Starmer get what he wanted?
1: Right, so on, I really should be able to remember the timeline for this thing as I'm writing about this in the poll call in this week's Shiny Super sorry, New Statesman. So at some point in the past, Thursday, Wednesday, last week Of course, the the Labour leadership put forward a package of measures to reform the party rulebook, the most headline-grabbing of which was the idea to return to the old Electoral College. People with more interesting social lives than me may have forgotten how the Electoral College worked, where basically you had a third of the vote for the Parliamentary Party, a third of the vote for uh, affiliated political levy-paying trade union members, and a third of the vote for Labour Party members. Now, there are loads of reasons why this was uh, slightly, shall we say, eccentric, system from a democratic perspective not least because those of you who've thought about it for two minutes will go wait a second there are some people who are labor members trade union members and labor mps how many votes do they yeah it was it was it was a nonsense system but the sort of the meat of the reforms was the stuff to make it you know yet harder to deselect later labor mps to increase increase that threshold for what you need to get to be on the leadership ballot to 20 percent. cue a lot of acrimony a lot of sort of you know kind of Private and public sort of horse trading at the NEC and at Chulo, which is the umbrella organization of the twelve affiliated unions. One of the things that's very difficult about covering this conference is my Word program auto-corrects affiliated to afflicted.
0: Um, which, yeah, which is on these things
1: like, is that wrong? But essentially what, what happened is, is there was, you know, a, a bunch of sort of wrangling. The leadership has got its package of reforms, essentially it's a power grab for the parliamentary party, and then some power-grabbing also for the trade unions, right, because they regain their veto over the deselection process, right, then in practice, if, you know, you cannot be deselected as Labour MP unless you both annoy your members and annoy your local trade unions to a point that they decide to get rid of you. And because the branch system for trade unions, right, you'd think, like, oh, right, so that's maybe one for every affiliated trade union. No. So let's say, for example, that you are Usdor, right, and you want to protect a Labour MP, or you want to get rid of a Labour MP you like, well, you're not confined to going, oh, well, we've got one Tesco's in like this posh ward, we've got like a Tesco Metro at the other end. If you want, you can be like, branch for the people who work in the freezer section, branch for the people who work on the front, branch for, the these members, these branches don't have to have any members, right? So of course, as you can see, right, if you are a trade union who wants to protect an MP from deselection, you can, right? You can. You can always make sure that they are they are protective. So th- this this is a really significant set of rule changes in terms of the balance of power between the Labour Party's three goes. So I think you know. I imagine we'll get into, it. has this been a good conference or a bad conference? But I think the, the really significant thing was once that deal had been done, all of those things were gonna pass. And really the significant thing is now, you know, the argument lots of Labour and peace would make to you for ages is it's so hard for us to face the country because we had to spend five months before the last election worrying about getting deselected. And we're continually, and again, they may be being overly nervous about that, but they believe it. And the point they now have to prove, right, is they have now been given this, yeah, you basically can't be deselected if you're a Labour MP, right? Unless you really try. Which means they they do now have this point to prove of, can they use this additional freedom and this additional power to put forward an election-winning offer? Because if they can't, I think they will inevitably be questions going, well, what did we get for all of your new and increased influence?
0: Yeah, and some of the headlines on this have focused on Keir Starmer losing the fight over the Electoral College. Now, you're analysis Stephen was that this was always something that he'd put forward in, as a negotiating sort of tactic in, in order to get the changes that you've just laid out there. The risk of course was was of headlines saying you know Keir has lost the fight that he picked with the left which is actually a headline I did notice when I was co- otherwise covering the fuel crisis on Sunday. So how far is, it, is, is, is this criticism that these, this internal wrangling was pulling focus from what what Keir Starmer should have been doing at this conference, fair? And how far is that sort of clever negotiating tactic that you've written about was worthwhile uh, in terms of the risk of those headlines?
1: It's both, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it is true to say that your biggest enemy at this conference is the energy crisis, which is also your biggest political opportunity going forward. right? But um, there's always one conference every year where you're just thinking, why am I here? There's a much bigger story. The two of you are so tired of me using the Glasgow 2014 example. Wow, I'm so <laughs> sorry. I'm going to do it probably five more times before the end of the day. But in 2014, Lib Dem conference, yeah, there was a, a row about whether or not Ed Miliband was going to be got rid of by the PLP. So you're spending this time you know, in, in Glasgow. Lib Dem MPs are going, how do you think it's going? And like... I don't think they've got the numbers for a challenge. And they're like, Vince is going to challenge Nick? And it's like, oh, no, no, sorry, a different party. Um, And it's been a bit like that, right? And then it's just like, people are like, how's it going? And it's just like, well, I don't know, I don't drive. And they're like, what, has a driver's union affiliated now? Um, So I think the main thing which has distracted from it has been this story. So I think there is a really good case to be made that the leadership did have this golden opportunity to air its dirty linen in public, break a lot of China, simply because... I mean, unless Keir Starmer in his speech tomorrow pulls out a jerry can and he goes, conference, I've stockpiled eight of these and you should too. I just don't see how you're getting into the main story. Of course, there is an open question about is this package of rule changes the right one? I think the fact that, so, you know, yeah, on the, as you say, on the, on the Friday, I just went, look, I simply don't believe the Electoral College is the important thing here. It, it, its benefits to any one faction are so dubious, which is, of course, why almost every faction in the Labour Party has now had every possible position on whether or not they like or dislike the Electoral College. Whereas, actually, the, the, the changes for the PLP, again, they don't, they don't benefit any one faction, definitely, but they do very definitely benefit one know two constituent parts of the Labour Party and so I but I think it does speak to the fact that although the new operation around Keir Starmer is sharper in some ways they still aren't good at to use a very corporate phrase stakeholder management right then yeah there were so many journalists who don't have the same weird passion for party rule books than I do who didn't understand why they were doing it because they weren't trying to explain it there were key people and again in this a week's shiny super way new statesman i'll be writing about some of them there are a bunch of people in the labor party who who should have known this was going to happen who kind of basically found out on twitter and so i think that is continues to be the the interesting floor in this project is just how they've got what they wanted this has been successful from a process perspective did the process have to be quite this painful to go through probably not
0: yeah i know it's a source from the NEC who I was talking to was saying that, while well, she was sympathetic with the changes, was saying that, it, it, that, that some people were blindsided by them and you know, the way that it was brought about, I think the phrase was, it's not the way that I would choose to live, (laughs) which I thought was quite a good way of putting it. Nevertheless, and I don't know whether you'd agree with this, Alva, the the mood did change at conference once they managed to pass those rules, I thought, and there's quite a lot of jubilant MPs and their staff wandering around since then, and it does feel like it was a bit of a victory, even if you do get these sort of off record noises off about, you know, should we really be talking to ourselves rather than the country? You know, Andy Burnham's being saying that on record at pretty much every fringe event that he's been invited to so there is an undercurrent of that you know slight head scratching you know it's not the way I would choose to live type thing but there's definitely a relief among those who are sympathetic with Keir Starmer's sort of leadership or at least not you know completely pessimistic about it that that's passed and they can now start talking about the policies that they've that they've begun to announce on in the auditorium on the actual stage still haven't actually been in there Have you shows, not? it shows how busy a conference can be <laughs> yeah.
2: but then I think the funny thing about all of this is that then there's I think been a secondary row rumbling away which is actually about policies and that has also kind of been going on since sort of last week and it kind of began with Ed Miliband on Newsnight making a passionate case very Ed Miliband style for public ownership of energy companies and the the leadership have made really no secret of how frustrated they were with that. And the joy of being a Labour conference is that you have many more opportunities to see the leader's office (laughs) in person. So you hear more about it in the bar. So there's been a lot of frustration with Ed Miliband, which has kind of spilled into this week. And there's been this policy battle because then of course, in Keir Starmer's interview on Andrew Marr, alongside all of this rule change stuff, which was building, He very firmly said that the Labour Party had no plans to re-nationalise the the big six energy companies, to nationalise them, and that was really received as a bit of a snub to Ed Miliband. So there's the personal drama there between the current leader and the former leader, this time not actually with Jeremy Corbyn, but a different former leader. (laughs) Um, But then also I think there's just wider policy tension where I think it's really been... I don't know if, if... People in the audience have felt this, but I think the fact that Keir Starmer has quite clearly gone back on a pledge that he made during the leadership election and has contradicted something that has actually been in party press releases, a thing that they've reiterated time and again, public ownership of energy, or common ownership, because that's less alienating. That that's been that's been reiterated a lot but I don't think that it's really cut through as a controversy, but it's been rumbling under the surface. And then, of course, last night, the drama we'd all been waiting for, Andy McDonald, comes <laughs> out of nowhere and, and resigns from the Shadow Cabinet. And again, that's the sort of the, these bigger tensions over Keir Starmer's commitment or otherwise to his leadership pledges kind of coming to the fore. I'm interested in what both of you have made of the Andy McDonald stuff because I have a lot of thoughts. And again, the joy of being at Labour conferences that you're able to see everyone involved in a completely different context. It was actually so funny because the MPs are are busy. When that news broke about five o'clock last night, we were obviously ringing round to, to see the reaction and find out what had happened. And I just find, because MPs have been in so many fringe meetings, I was ringing them to break the news <laughs> in every case. <laughs> and I had to read, read out the resignation letter on the phone quite a few times. So it, it seems like that announcement took actually a lot of MPs on the left by surprise. Um, I don't think that it was planned at all. You could, uh, Unless they're very good actors, you could you could tell that there was genuine surprise there. But there's a real latent frustration among, I think, plenty of... MPs now about the position on things like public ownership, and his resignation has been a bit of a lightning rod for that. That's the B plot of conference. There is plot A, the Electoral College reforms, plot B, all of this, which of course does have a, you know, a direct right across to the really serious story that's going on at the moment around you know soaring energy costs the Labour Party's policy on this is important and they are having a bit of an argy-bargy about it at the very top of the leadership, but it's been slightly, maybe that's a good thing, it's been slightly overshadowed by other things.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting, the policy aspect of of those splits because the Andy MacDonald resignation seems like you have written, seems to have taken people by surprise, not just on the left, but within sort of the, the centre of the party, who have actually been quite impressed with the stuff that he and Angela Rayner have been producing in terms of fair work and quality jobs. So, you know, from what I've heard, the resignation was not so much about his objections to the policies that he was suddenly, you know, that he suddenly decided that he no longer agreed with, because he'd been making, you know, he'd been working towards these policies that have been announced at conference. So the politics was more important. And you've written about the, the politics behind it, Stephen. What, what do you think was going on there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's possible to, when you've covered Labour politics for perhaps slightly too long to start overdosing on cynicism. But real talk, guys, Andy McDonald does not think that the minimum wage should be at 31 grand, which is more than median earnings if you are working full time. And he does not think that it should go up by fifty percent of what it was in the twenty nineteen manifesto. I think one of the really interesting things yeah, this this is about the fact that he's you know he's felt there's a lack of consultation, he's been frustrated by the wider direction, and there's you know various interpersonal political disputes within that future working. The really interesting thing I think about a lot of the politics of that is it's a direct attack obviously on Keir Starmer, but it's also a really interesting, indirect attack on Angela Rayner, who exerted a lot of political capital to help keep him in that job, has really shepherded that quite ambitious package of labor market reforms which again this way i say there was mystification on the center and the right party because they were like well the policies are great he was really happy with them and we're obviously going to keep them but you yeah, know one ally of angela rain said to me I say this yeah they, they described it as a disgusting betrayal because they were just like look this just you yeah, know they said why didn't he just say he quit because of the rule changes instead of kind of hobbling the well, yeah because that that is really about the rule changes right which i mean the rule changes are a big deal, right, in terms of if your conception of the Labour Party is then it should be member-led, these rule changes decisively, okay, there are no permanent uh, victories and defeats in politics, but this is a decisive shift away from the idea of Labour as a member-led party. I mean, this is the underlying thing about all Labour discourse, right, as a party you're just incapable of talking about the thing you're actually disagreeing about, which I think is, yeah, you, know, you see this with a lot of the kind of, rocks, like, you know, Keir Starmer going, oh. We're not nationalising the big six because you know we need to be credible. It's like, well, okay. Does that mean that you want to renationalise the infrastructure of the national grid and then regulate the companies differently? Does that mean you just don't? You know, does that mean you think the energy market, as it currently exists, works?
2: Or does it just mean that that's what you want to do, but you're worried about saying it?
1: Yeah. Because yeah, you, just, wor- yeah, 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 does, you. Yeah. Because you want it, to appear credible. Yeah. Does it? Does it mean? Because <laughs> I a, think that's
2: what people hear from yeah, that, isn't I it? I think
1: this thing is. I think whenever a politician goes oh, we don't want to do this because we need to look credible. I just think everyone who supports the policy is like, oh, so you're not going to do it, great. And everyone who's worried about it is like, oh. So you don't want to be honest about the fact you are totally 100% going to do it the second you get a chance. But there's this weird inability for people to argue for what they actually want, and instead you end up with this, yeah, ridiculous situation where it's just like, you know, I mean, fine, if... at the, po- at the point you have a minimum wage that high, you have remade the economy in a very profound way, which, you yeah, maybe that is what the Labour Party wants to do, but it, it, it should be clear that that's the argument it's making, yeah. rather, rather than going, oh, yeah, that would be the new statutory floor.
0: So are we kind of coming to an agreement here that the, the, the most significant splits at this conference are perhaps the ones that aren't getting so much media attention, which are about this, you know, the big six, but also other policy disputes within the shadow cabinet rather than the left making trouble for the leadership. Can you talk a bit more about what, what you've been picking up you know, on that? Because Rachel Reeves is a good example, isn't she? You know, she's someone who's constantly, since being shadow chancellor and of course beforehand, said, you know, we have to prove economic competence and responsibility. And her speech was a perfect example of that because that was how she framed it. But then of course, she, she announced this bumper you know, investment yeah. for green spending.
2: Yeah, and they have a new tagline, which I think is quite good because I've I've already been able to memorise it without intending to. That the Labour Party would tax fairly, spend wisely, and get the economy firing on all cylinders. Oh, <laughs> I've heard that so many times. I've already heard it, and I think we'll be hearing it ad nauseam until the next election, <laughs> which is very good. much the point yeah. um, <laughs> that they that they want to hammer home. That certainly, I think the thinking at the top of the Labour Party is that. Labour can't win if it doesn't poll well on economic credibility it has only ever won when it does so the number one message is that Labour needs to reassure people that it will be responsible with the public finances I think there was polling recently someone like a senior Labour person was talking about this within the past couple of days there was polling not that long ago that shows that Members of the public do still remember Liam Byrne's letter as Labour left government, you know, there is no money left. That that still haunts Labour. I think probably they don't want journalists to be reminding people of it in their discussion about Labour's um, <laughs> economic financial... Credibility. <laughs> economic credibility. But that's really what they're dealing with. And so Rachel Reeves, Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, everyone in Keir Starmer's team, I think they... They really want to hammer home that message. But at the same time, they have a lot that they want to do. They don't want to see a return to austerity. And so there were mixed messages. We've been talking a lot about this over breakfast at the conference hotel. There there were mixed messages in that speech, which are probably fine as an overall package of things that you want to do for the economy, but don't boil down to one clear message for the country. It's not really clear if you are a regular voter, what, what you're meant to hear from Rachel Reeves' speech. Were you meant to hear, I'll manage the, you know, the public finance as well, or was it, I'm gonna invest really radically to tackle the climate emergency. Obviously, in theory, you can do both, but you maybe can't be sending the two messages in the same speech. But I think in terms of the divisions, everyone's been falling out with Ed Miliband at this conference. There'll be more on that in the New Statesman website later today. <laughs> I think that that's, I think a lot of it is about the left and Stephen outlined there the way the Andy MacDonald stuff doesn't really seem to have been about the 15 pound minimum wage at all and Certainly around all the various receptions and parties last night, people were just so confused. Members of the Shadow Cabinet, he's very well liked, it's worth saying, but members of the Shadow Cabinet saying, you know, if this was his hill to die on, why have we never heard Mm. him say he wanted a 15-pound minimum wage before tonight? Because that idea has been knocking around for ages. Yeah. Yeah. but the, you know, it's clearly not something that, that he's particularly passionate about. Or certainly, if he is, he kept it quite quiet. And that it is more about maybe a, a mixture of real changes and feeling personally unappreciated by senior Labour people. But he only needed to say that he had resigned and suddenly the Labour left stood to attention and were briefing quite furiously that I'm not only just supporting the minimum wage stuff, but actually saying that Labour is pitching itself to the right of the Conservatives. And that I think that, that Labour is so obsessed with respectability politics that it's not managing to get anything done. So I think that there are, you know, there are divisions over the economic direction that Rachel Reeves did, I think, just about managed to, to plaster over with her speech. But ultimately, that messaging of we want, you know, to, to tell people that we're going to be responsible with the public finances isn't widely beloved by, by all parts of the the Labour PLP. I mean, maybe there's nothing that they can do about that, and that's, that's fine, but it's just a bubbling there under the surface.
0: Yeah, of course, and it's not, it's not, this isn't a new problem, but it's definitely been present at this conference, which is it's very frustrating for other shadow teams because, you know, Rachel Reeves gets to save the big spending announcements for her speech but she also gets to set the tone on the you know we're not going to make any spending commitments which makes it really difficult for shadow cabinet ministers to make their own announcements and be creative and be imaginative and get their ideas out there which which can feel like a restraint you know i've heard someone use the phrase Rachel says no you know every time they want to sort of say something on x policy Rachel says no but i heard those same complaints when Ed Balls was Shadow Chancellor, and I think it's just the nature... And indeed, when John yeah. McDonnell
1: was Shadow Chancellor. Yeah. I think the, the thing I actually think is interesting is, you know, if, you, if you bumped into a, a Shadow Cabinet minister at any point in the weeks before conference, they would complain about the fact that they felt they felt you know, the, the hand of the Shadow Chancellor on them going, no, you can't be too interesting. Everything has to fit a theme. And I think, basically, there's an open argument about whether or not the direction of travel that these rule changes have is good or bad. But I think, actually, there's an open and shut one of it was a sensible time to like, you know, ha- have your fight, seeing as you, you weren't gonna uh, get much public attention anyway. But I think actually, the more interesting qu- um, criticism of the Labour leadership is, let's imagine for a moment that there was no energy crisis and then you've done all of the rule changes last year and there's just what's left of this conference, just those policy items, which yeah, every shadow minister complains like the shadow tra- chancellor and the leadership is like, what is the through line on any of them? like? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with getting rid of the right to buy or changing the taxable status of private schools or 280 billion pounds on energy prices, but it's just like, can any of you guess from those three policies what a policy in Keir's speech might be about? Because at this point, you really ought to, at this point, be able to blag what the Labour Party's position is on the, issue, on the issues it doesn't have a public position on just by what it's already said. Like, if you take, say, social care, obviously a hugely important electoral issue in 2017. Actually, at the point when the Labour Party was winning votes on the idea that it was you know, going to provide something universal and free at the point of use, it hadn't actually announced that. It's just they had announced so many other policies that indicated that universal and free at the point of use was their thing that we we made sense and i think this is actually the, the the worrying thing about this conference in the kind of you know is this conference going badly well or badly well it depends on your perspective is just that the labor party still doesn't have a flavor uh, you, know, like you, you can't really guess what it's for. You can't really have a through line. It just has a bunch of policies that broadly unite most Lib Dem MPs, most Labour MPs, most SNP MPs, most Pied Cymru MPs, and you know probably 75% of Caroline Lucas, depending on how she's feeling that day, right? <laughs> like, um, and, and that, that is, the, the lack of direction and theme is a real problem, not least because, yeah, as, as Alva will, says, right? shadow ministers have definitely felt a lot of direction but yeah i think you'd be hard pressed to see it in terms of the output
2: and another thing that's just really struck me is the way you know i've i was asked a lot before both conferences before conference season began how the energy crisis and the the quite serious situation that we're looking at how that would play out across the conferences and the thing that I sort of said was that I thought it would be quite easy for Labour but it would be difficult for the Conservatives because the point you made on a previous podcast Stephen it'll be tricky for (laughs) for the Conservative Party to set the tone or to get the tone right when they're at champagne receptions and it looks very glitzy and glamorous while a lot of people face a very hard winter but I've actually felt that Labour Conference I could be wrong on this because as you say if we're in fringe meetings and doing our own things maybe we we're not capturing the mood perfectly but I don't feel like Labour Conference has spoken very much to the current crisis and actually the the biggest rounds of applause in events that I've been at have been when members of the Shadow Cabinet say the thing that la- that the government can do right now is to end the uplift to, univer- to to stop the cut to universal credit. um, That so much of this crisis is beyond the government's control. That's a, a simple bit that they do have control over. And I think hammering home that message of where, you know, where the government can assume some responsibility is you know i think that would be quite successful coming out of this conference but it's not a line it's there but it's not one that we've been really hearing you know hammered home in a way that i think would actually insert labor more effectively into the story
0: yeah no i agree having yeah having basically had my head down in the universal credit story which i think is only going to get bigger and bigger as we come to tory conference you know the day of boris johnson's speech is the day that that cut comes in if it does come in and also covering the fuel crisis as well. You do get you do get this impression that we are kind of in a parallel universe in conference. Maybe that is just, you know, being on the fringe circuit and being at, you know, these receptions and only talking about what's being announced here, but I almost feel like it is a missed opportunity and MPs and their staff kind of, you know, they're divided on how much you should talk about it and how much you should just let the government get on with messing everything up. But I I think as you're not getting that much airtime as you usually would for your party's annual conference anyway, the airtime that you do have, I don't know why you wouldn't just use it on those two issues because they are linked as well, aren't they? Because you're basically trying to find ways to lessen the grim winter that's coming up for people. And, you know, all people are seeing on the news is this footage of these forecourts and traffic jams and all people are seeing in their day-to-day lives is they can't, you know, fill their cars up. So I don't know why you wouldn't talk about that More, And, you know, there have been people who have been really frustrated at this conference that hasn't featured as prominently as as perhaps it should have done. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues, too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's now time for questions. We'd really like you to join in with our You Ask Us. They would like you to join it.
2: Stephen's not keen. (laughs) So So, all of you have to join in because I don't think Stephen's going to. Can I do it? Yeah, you do it. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Us. Perfect. Um, So first question from Alex Thomas, our friend from the IFG. We love the IFG.
1: Hi there, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, we love you too. Um, <laughs> is Rachel Reeves' Office for Value for Money a good idea?
0: It's a good question. I've heard a lot of people say there, there already is one, the National Audit Office. So I suppose that's a bit of a cynical response. But the Office for Value for Money is a good name, right? The National Audit Office is not a good name. So mm. I suppose the branding ties into the story she's trying to tell about the new Labour Party, which is, we can be trusted with your money. Um, so I get it from a comms perspective, but I've heard, and I'm sure you know more about this than I do at the IFG, but I've heard announcements like this before, and I do think it's maybe a little bit of a re-announcement of a re-announcement.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, so there's the political question, there's the Whitehall architecture question, and the Whitehall architecture question is the fun bit. So <laughs> because, yeah, we, we already have the National Audit Office, right? There are two problems. I think, one, there's, there's a fair critique to be made that does the National Audit Office essentially over index on the idea that you should run the state as lean as possible and i think you do see that a bit with the national audit office critiques of test and trace where it's basically like the pandemic seems to be under control in the uk you need to lay more people off oh the pandemic's come back why didn't you have any slack in the system at test and trace does essentially feel to be the kind of push you pull me that the nao ends up with on test and trace so there is a downside from a Whitehall architecture to having like this thing called the office of value for money which i assume would essentially surpass or boost the NAO in practice. And it's not clear to me, whereas I think there actually is a value to the OBR, and it does provide a useful counterpoint to have a thing that goes, actually, the chancellor dance of the five veils there isn't really true. This is actually really a really austere budget. Right? It's useful to have that additional thing because it kind of shapes the discourse. I think my concern in terms of its actual practicality is the number one reason why governments give money to their political allies and to pet projects in marginal constituencies is because we have an electoral system and broadly, most of the time, if you get 45% of the vote, congratulations, you can do whatever the hell you want and there's no scrutiny. And if you actually want to restrain the government's ability to do that kind of thing, you actually need to either change the electoral system or build in more veto players and there are costs and benefits to those approach. I'm a bit dubious about it working for the Labour Party as a political thing because it does feel like the party at the moment, they both want to go, hey, we would spend, we'd be really credible, but my God, the credible spending will be off the chart. There'll be a lot of credible spending coming right out the wazoo. I just think one of the ways in politics was easier for Labour in 1997 is the economy was growing and that created this sort of fiscal headspace where you could go, well, we'll stay within their spending envelope, but that still allows a huge amount of extra spending. Now it's possible that Rishi Sunak is going to do you a massive favor by coming out and going, that extra headroom, I don't plan to use it, which then does make this value for money stuff more politically potent. But I, yeah, I'm I'm just a bit dubious about it. Yeah,
0: and it's always a bit of a risk to concentrate on waste. So I understand that it's become really politically salient with the pandemic and the crap contracts for test and trace and PPE and all of this stuff. And Rachel Rees is obviously really strong on this stuff anyway. But as soon as you start talking about a wasteful state, you also start bringing people's attention to the fact that the state doesn't spend your money wisely, which makes it harder to sell tax rises, for example.
2: Yeah, so I suppose I will be the defender of this idea maybe in that, I mean, who knows whether the actual body suggested would do the work that it intends to do, but it is definitely work that is necessary. I think Rachel Reeves personally, as you just alluded to, Anoush, has a real personal stake in this, like during her time on the back benches as chair of the business select committee, scrutinizing the collapse of Carillion. I think she was genuinely horrified by the way those contracts were awarded the way there was no scrutiny of how that would would go and the ripple effect causing unemployment for so many thousands of people. I, I think actually lots of politicians, not just in the Labour Party but across Parliament, working especially on the Public Accounts Committee are routinely shocked by how badly allocated public money is on certain contracts and there's this real feeling of frustration among MPs, I think, who care about this, that It's only after the event that you realise quite how bad it was, and it just doesn't seem to be fixed. So clearly there is a case, a very serious one, to find some way of addressing this, and whatever happens at the moment isn't working. And that's clearly only a part of it. It's also just a political signal that labour cares about value for money. But I think that there is an actually quite serious policy case for sorting this out, and even if it's a silly new department with a kind of silly name, it's probably advantageous for lots of Labour politicians to have the opportunity to defend this and to make the point that I just kind of had to outline to talk about this history of poorly awarded contracts and how bad that has been um, and how we actually do have a Shadow Chancellor who has quite a lot of expertise in this. Whatever you think of her politics, she's really the person who could take this on and would have a lot of ideas as to how to tackle it. That's my, my small defense of the silly department with a silly name. A question from Leon. Uh,
1: yeah, so essentially I just wanted to ask, in terms of Andy McDonald's re- uh, resignation and the uh, subsequent briefing from the left of the party, Why do you think there's been sort of more emphasis placed on the idea of the £15 minimum wage rather than uplifting statutory sick pay when that seems to be the more sort of tender spot for Starmer? It is a really good question, right? I do sometimes worry that the Labour Party actually gives off a form of radiation that makes almost everyone in it do things that are obviously not in their interest because, like, it it is perverse when you have a situation in which we actively financially incentivise people to come in sick right? And we also financially punish businesses. You know, we essentially say, look, if you're a business and you say, please don't come into work sick, which is, you know, yeah, that's a benefit for your business because you don't have to stop being sick. But that actually, we all collectively benefit from employers doing that. And we've decided to go, no, actually, that's a cost the business itself should have to. Like, the current sick pay policy that we have as a country is insane. And fixing that is obviously a good idea. And it was a huge missed opportunity. And I, yeah, don't really understand why this real, existent policy was the one that everyone No, we're not interested in that one. What we'd instead like is I'm sorry, this It's just just silly. At the point that you want a £15 an hour minimum wage, I think the main reason actually is the US is so culturally uh, influential now. They have their £15 an hour minimum wage. Now, actually, of course, the thing about the dollar is it actually is a different currency (laughs) from from the pound. Uh, I I was surprised too. And Actually, that that would be like campaigning for something closer to the £10 an hour than in the last Labour manifesto. But I do think one of the big culture changes, the leadership has got to find at some point, is you've become so bad at disagreeing with each other in an honest and non-destructive way. And that has been a problem for a very, very long
0: time. You know, as,
1: as long as I've been covering the Labour Party, you've had that problem. You've got to fix it. Peter. What can Labour and Keir Starmer learn from Olaf Schulz and the SPD in Germany?
0: Hmm. Good question.
1: Wants to go first. <laughs> I'll just call Jeremy Cliff. Oh, yeah,
2: what I say. <laughs> Dial Edo <Pop>. yeah.
1: <laughs> I think, actually, in some ways, right. The important lesson is one. Actually, the important thing is to be in the right place politically when you get to the election, right? Three months ago, everyone was writing off the SPD, and now they're almost certainly going to form the government because they did a variety of things that meant that they went into the election in the right place. But yeah. Yeah, he's actually subscribed to World Review, yeah.
0: Anna Shua. Hi, thank you. I'm a CLP secretary. I came home after a conference last night at 10pm. I'm really looking forward to watching Rachel Reeves' speech. Sam Coates bumped her for the Andy McDonnell um, manoeuvre. Do you think that's fair or right for the public not to be aware of what the alternative offering is? In what context was that? The, on the news or on the... On- it was on the news oh, right.
2: okay. it's an interesting one because when his resignation happened what wasn't clear was the extent to which it would muddy the message of rachel reeves's speech and in some cases it didn't really on the bbc and in other cases it it clearly having not seen it and, and not knowing the exact context i suppose i wouldn't want to pass comment on whether that was the right or wrong editorial decision but i suppose in general It's a tricky balance to strike because the Labour Party has a really really narrow window to communicate its economic vision to the country it's not really getting much of an opportunity to do that anyway because of the unfolding fuel crisis and it's sort of unavoidable really that when there's a shadow cabinet resignation the messages that Rachel Reeves was putting out which were already a bit mixed. There was the message of economic credibility and messages around investment to prevent the climate emergency. Those messages were already muddied. And then I suppose the message that the public is also getting is that Labour is actually divided on the economy and potentially that Keir Starmer is against a high minimum wage or against an increase in statutory sick pay. And also there's division over rule changes and it's sort of how much space you want to give that. But it's just interesting and revealing, I think, that it it did manage to bump off Reeves. Yeah, and I would say,
0: because every politician that you speak to about conference says it is their one opportunity to get, you know, into the nation's living rooms and that's been pretty much impossible at this conference because of the fuel crisis, although some things have trickled through. So there's a very, very minor, tiny window where they can get things out there. And I would say that it is the job of a good politician to be able to be that person who gets that space on the news. And if you have shadow cabinet ministers resigning during your conference for whatever reason, then, you know, that is a symptom of a dysfunctional Leadership, And so, you know, I, I do think that the party should, should be winning those slots and it's on them, it's not on journalists to help them out.
1: I do think it's actually a real problem that the BBC has opted not to cover your conference full-time this week. Yeah. Just from a basic scrutiny perspective, you are the other party of government and we should treat you... Seri- yeah, It's one of those things where it's, it's always possible and, you know, you could go into the next election 10 points down and, you know, the day before it turns out Boris Johnson has been, you know eating children in order to keep his hair fluffy, right? And so we should always cover you like you are a serious proposition for power. Uh, and one of the things that I think that we have got very wrong as an industry, in 2015, we basically went, Cameron's been defeated. This is all about Ed. And in 2017, we were like, this old dude's not interesting. This is all about Theresa May. But I actually do think it is more important to cover the fact that the Labour Party is divided. Because I think it's unlikely that Andy McDonald resigning will trigger a chain of events and means Rachel Reeves is not shadow Chancellor because Keir Summer is not leader. It's possible and we do have to in the media at least give space to that more important story which is not yet clear what your alternative offer will be because it's not yet clear who will be the person making it but I do think in general we do have a problem sometimes that we we kind of cover what we think the outcome will be rather than covering the process. Like we saw that with Brexit, where the whole thing was covered in a kind of what will David Cameron do after he narrowly wins the referendum to bring his party back together rather than what does Brexit mean? And it is a problem that we do that kind of teleological journalism. But I think it was the right call to put the division over the policy announcement.
0: I don't think we have time for any more questions, but thank you so much for submitting your questions. They're really interesting. And thanks for coming and for listening.
2: You've been listening to the New States and Podcasts with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush, live from Labour Party Conference. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you very much for listening and thank you to those of you who attended.